Well, we return this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and we're going to pick up this morning with verse 11 of Luke, chapter 19. Jesus, of course, is, as uh, we have seen previously, on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that when he arrives at Jerusalem, he will be arrested and he will be brought to his death. That is what awaits him. And so for quite some time now, we've been tracing his journey from the north of Israel down to Jerusalem, and we are almost there. Later in this chapter, when we come to verse 28, we will arrive at Jerusalem, and there we will see Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. But we're not there quite yet. And so we pick up this morning with verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten, ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I was an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Father, make us receptive to your word this morning. For the glory of Christ we ask it. 
Amen. As you have probably noticed, the economy ain't doing so well these days. Interest rates and fuel prices are rising, the GDP is down, and the political talking heads are arguing about whether or not we have entered into a recession. Of course, it wasn't all that long ago that the opposite was true. And if past is prologue and God forestalls his judgment, then more than likely things will eventually turn around again. If you live long enough, (laughs) you see the cycles. But no one knows the future but the Lord, and although we might be able to make educated guesses, no one knows where things will stand in months or years from now. But one thing remains true when it comes to one's personal economy. The wise person understands that from a human perspective, the future is a question mark. And so he prepares for it. The wise man has a strategy. In his last parable before the cross, Jesus urges us to invest wisely in the kingdom. The fact is that a large proportion of Jesus' stories have money as a central element. But I don't think that he's speaking primarily of financial investment in this particular parable, although that is part of our responsibility. We are to be stewards of what God gives to us. But rather, I think that his point has more to do with the investment of our gifts, our talents, our lives. This parable, usually referred to as the parable of the ten minas, is in some ways similar to the parable of the talents, which we find elsewhere. There are similarities, but there are differences as well. One of those differences is in the amount that is used. A talent is comprised of 60 minas. It's not difficult to understand why Jesus tells this particular parable at this particular time. Going back to the beginning of chapter 18 and following through into chapter 19, Jesus has been telling stories and having encounters which focus upon the attitudes and behaviors and responses of the rich and the poor. Chapter 18 begins with the parable of a judge and a widow. And that's followed by the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Luke then tells us about Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, followed by two more divine appointments, one with blind Bartimaeus as he sits by the side of the road begging, and then Zacchaeus as a rich and corrupt man whom we find sitting in a tree. And now just before Jesus finally reaches Jerusalem and enters into the city in triumph and in fulfillment of messianic prophecy, he has one more story to tell. What we need to keep in mind as we examine this parable is that Jesus is not intending to give us financial advice. He's not posing as a divine Dave Ramsey. This is, this is not his purpose. 
His focus, as always, is about the kingdom. And that's clear right from the start as you look at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So this parable is intended to prepare the disciples for what is about to happen given the fact that in spite of all of Jesus' teaching, they still don't understand the kingdom, nor do they understand what must soon take place. Jesus has told them this repeatedly. Have you ever come across someone who only hears what they want to hear? (laughs) That's what's going on with the disciples. It seems that they were very much in that kind of a mode. Jesus had told them again and again what was going to happen once they reached Jerusalem. But somehow, as Jesus speaks the words, I'm going to die, something happens with the sound waves between his mouth and their ears. And when Jesus says, I'm going to die, the disciples hear, I'm going to be made king. So Jesus is going to tell this parable which contains a veiled hint that the kingdom they are expecting will not come immediately. And in the meantime, they have a job to do. I mentioned a moment ago there are similarities between this parable and another parable which Jesus spoke, which is recorded for us in Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the talents Both parables speak of a wealthy man going on a long journey. In both, he entrusts to his servants certain amounts of money. In both, the man returns and demands an accounting from his servants. In both, two of the servants invested wisely while one does not. In both, the excuse of the third servant is fear. And in both, the third servant is deprived of what had been given to him as it is given to the one who had the most. A lot of similarities. But there are differences too. In Matthew, each servant is given a different amount of money, where here in Luke, each servant is given the same amount. As I mentioned previously, in ancient weights and measures, there were 60 minas to a talent. So in Matthew, the sums are large. Here in Luke, they are relatively small. In Matthew, the third servant is severely punished. But here in Luke, he only loses what he had been given to invest. There are certainly enough differences between the stories to conclude that these are different parables delivered on different occasions designed to teach, however, the same truth, though with different emphases. The story in Matthew teaches that we all have different gifts and we are responsible only to be faithful with what we have been given. Here, the story in Luke teaches that we all have one basic task, and that task is to be faithful. 
And we will be judged on the degree of our faithfulness. The people to whom Jesus tells this story of the nobleman going to a distant country to have himself appointed king would have had certain things in their mind as soon as Jesus begins to tell the story. They would have intuitively thought of King Herod or, more likely, of his son Archelaus, both of whom, who, both of whom had to go to Rome in order to have themselves appointed king over the Jewish territory, since the whole of Israel at this time was under Roman authority. Archelaus was actually followed to Rome when he went to be appointed. He was followed there by 50 Jewish citizens who strongly opposed his appointment. And for good reason. At Passover of the previous year, he had ordered the massacre of 3,000 Jewish citizens. And of course, to the Roman Empire, such a thing wasn't even worth noticing. That's small potatoes to Rome. Archelaus was, therefore, still granted control over the territory. In spite of what had happened, and in spite of the people in Israel feeling so strongly about it that they sent a delegation there to Rome to speak against his appointment. He was appointed, given authority, but interestingly enough, due to this and other issues that Rome had with him, he was never permitted the use of the title king. But that's what people would have had in mind when Jesus was telling this parable. And while Jesus' audience would have been thinking about Archelaus, Jesus obviously has something else in mind, something far deeper and more important than a commentary on the current political situation in Israel. And so we read this in verse 12 as he begins to Open up the parable. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country in order to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Okay. Pay attention to that little word, so. That brings you back to what we just read in verse 11. Jesus wants to talk about the kingdom of God. So, he tells this parable. It should be pretty clear that when Jesus speaks of the nobleman, he's not speaking about Archelaus, he's speaking about himself. The journey to this distant country refers to his ascension to heaven following his death and resurrection when he sits down at the right hand of the Father. The servants with whom he leaves his resources are his disciples and his, his followers. The subjects who hate him are unbelievers. They are those of the world and those who oppose him and reject his rule over them. With that understanding, let's tackle three primary truths conveyed in this parable. The first is this. We are each given resources to invest 
for God during the absence of the king. The king is gone. Jesus ascended to the Father and was given the kingdom due to his obedience, being obedient even to death, demonstrated that this this obedience was accepted by God in the resurrection. Jesus ascends to the Father and sits down at the right hand of the Father. and He's going to return as the nobleman in the parable. But what happens in the meantime? Well, that's what this parable is about. Each of the ten servants is given the same amount of money, a mina, which would have been perhaps three months' wages for the average working man at the time. And the instructions are simple. Take this, put it to work until I get back. And the fact that he goes to a far country indicates that he's not going to return anytime soon. The first servant follows an investment strategy that increases his assets by a thousand percent. The second service servant produces 500 percent in the same amount of time. And the third servant, and only these three are mentioned, even though ten are given a mina, and the reason, of course, is that this is all Jesus needed to make his point. But he hides his money in a napkin, a handkerchief, so as not to lose it, because he's afraid of his master. We'll come back to that idea. Financial advisors often talk about a risk-reward ratio. The greater the risk, the greater the potential reward. The less the risk, the less the potential reward, all other things being equal. At the high-risk end of the spectrum, you can make a lot of money, but you can just as easily lose a lot of money. And on the other end of the risk spectrum is stashing your cash in your mattress or putting it in a handkerchief. Almost no risk, except perhaps from robbers or fire or mice. (laughs) But there's no reward. In fact, in a period of high inflation, such as we're seeing now, one is actually losing money by doing nothing with it. Now, I want you to think about these three men in Jesus' story from the perspective of spiritual investment, viewing their resources as the opportunity and responsibility to serve God, how did they do? Well, the first servant evidently took some significant risks, and he increased his assets tenfold. And some of God's servants are called to do this. They're called to engage in Risky spiritual investment strategies. These servants are pioneers. They're risk takers. We might see these as frontier missionaries. Taking the gospel where it's never been preached before. Or perhaps those who go into lands that are positively hostile to the gospel. They're taking risks. They may lose everything. But they may gain much for the kingdom. The second servant saw his assets increase fivefold. 
Some of God's servants will choose a more balanced portfolio. There are those who voluntarily limit their earning potential by devoting many hours a week in the service of Christ. I think of scores of gifted women who have sacrificed their careers until their children are reared. Those who risk relationships or reputation for the sake of the gospel. While many of these may not be pioneers in the riskiest sense of the term, they have made wise investments that pay off handsomely for the kingdom. It's even permissible, Jesus implies, for one to invest very conservatively. Remember what the nobleman said to the third servant in verse 23. Why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. The thrust is, you could have at least done that much. Even that would have earned commendation rather than condemnation. In the spiritual realm, there are people who are very uncomfortable with high-risk situations. Not only would they never go to preach the gospel in Saudi Arabia and thereby meet near certain death, but they have no desire even to visit Saudi Arabia. And that's okay. God has some conservative investments for people that are just as important. For some, that might be going out with our evangelistic team. They will meet opposition now and then, but I don't think beheading is the top of their list of concerns. Or perhaps a conservative investment means teaching a children's Sunday school class or leading a study in a nursing home or raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord or maintaining an impeccable reputation at work. Like the economy, the church goes through cycles, doesn't it? Every now and then, the evangelical church goes through a phase in which everyone is talking about the end times. Perhaps someone writes a book or someone makes a prediction and off we go. Likewise, every now and then, the church goes through what we might call its radical phase. Everything has to be radical. Books are published about radical Christianity, living radically for Jesus, how to have a radical prayer life, how we need to live lives of radical simplicity, and on and on and on. And what's the result? The result is that most Christians are made to feel worthless. I'm being told that every Christian is supposed to live a radical life, and when I look at my own life, I don't see much radical about it. And people begin to feel like the kingdom can get along very well without them and their normal, everyday life of discipleship. And they begin to feel guilty because if I'm supposed to be living this radical life, and I'm clearly not, then... That must be sin, right? Wrong. Does God call some 
to live lives that we might describe as radical? Of course he does, and we praise God for those brothers and sisters. But read your Bibles. Count up all the people in Scripture who lived lives which you might describe as radical, and then extrapolate from that how many people were living lives of simple day-to-day faithfulness. While Paul was traveling around the Roman Empire, preaching and planting churches and discipling men and women and getting stoned, real stones, shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, what were the saints in Philippi and Ephesus and Colossae and Rome and Thessalonica and Corinth doing? They were raising families. They were tending to flocks and herds. They were getting up every morning and taking inventory in their shops. And they were talking about Jesus to their customers and their neighbors and their family members. And they were caring for their fellow church members who were in need. And they were gathering together for Lord's Day worship. That doesn't seem very radical, does it? And yet that is what most of God's people have been called to through the centuries. What it does sound like is faithfulness. Now, there were and are some whom God does call to a life of radical faithfulness. If God calls you to travel in the footsteps of Paul or Barnabas or Stephen or Aquila and Priscilla, then go and do that. If that is the way God has built you, then go and be radical for Jesus and be willing to suffer whatever consequences come along with that. God calls some of his people to great difficulty. God calls some of his people even to martyrdom. But understand this. Not everyone is called to that kind of life or perhaps that kind of death. In the providence of God, not everyone is built like a Jim Elliot willing to face his death in an Ecuadorian river with a spear through his chest before he ever gets to say one word of the gospel to the Indians that he wanted to reach. That is unusual. And I know all of this probably sounds strange to some of you because I'm supposed to be the cheerleader. I'm supposed to be the motivational speaker who gets everybody all excited about living radically for Jesus. I get that. I'm supposed to be the one who gets you all excited, so by the time you leave here today, you'll all have grand visions of becoming heroic martyrs for the kingdom. The reality is, that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to tell you the truth as we find it in God's word. And this is what we're finding in the word of God today. 
The truth is that the vast majority of God's people are not called to heroic martyrdom. The truth is the vast majority of God's people are not called to live radically for Jesus. Most of us are called to live lives of simple, consistent faithfulness for the good of those around us and for the glory of God. And we ought not feel guilty for being faithful in the place God has placed us. God has given each of us a certain amount of spiritual resources, opportunities and responsibilities, but how we invest them is an individual matter. God has made us differently. There are some people who are natural risk takers and others who are not. Never allow anyone to convince you that the high risk taker is intrinsically more spiritual or more valuable to the kingdom than you are. If God is sovereign, he has placed you where you are to be faithful where you are. But no matter who you are, what is clearly not acceptable is hoarding those resources and doing nothing with them for the kingdom. The third servant in the story puts his resources in a napkin, a handkerchief. He fails to invest the money that he has been given so as to provide his master with any kind of return. Spiritually speaking, it seems to me he represents those in the church who don't know what their spiritual gifts are and don't really care. They don't try to find out. They don't serve. They don't give because they don't care. Jesus refers to these as unprofitable servants, unprofitable slaves. And there are, sadly, many such people in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when King Jesus returns, he sends for the servants and demands to know what they have gained with the money that had been entrusted to them. And the responses are interesting. The first response, Sir, your mina has made ten minas more. It's not, look at what I was able to accomplish. Did you notice that? Rather, your mina has made ten minas more. The servant keeps the focus on the master. It's your mina that has been at work. Draws no attention to himself. He recognized that what he started with was a gift from his master. The personal pronoun I or me doesn't even appear in his response. The second servant answers similarly, and the response of the nobleman to these two men reinforces what we've already said. God's approval is based not on how radical we are or on a given level of success. It's based upon our faithfulness. Verse 17, he said to him, well done, good slave. 
Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. Obviously, the master is pleased with the first servant, but approval is also expressed to the second servant, who only did, if you're going to be mathematical, half as well. True, the words good and faithful servant or slave are not repeated for the second one, but that seems to be just more about storytelling. He's affirmed. He's commended, just as the first slave was. And he's given charge of five cities. Both are faithful, both are commended, both are approved. I think we have to be careful here not to interpret Jesus' words mathematically so as to conclude that there is always a one-to-one ratio between service and reward. That's going beyond the purpose of the text. That's not what we're to take away from this. But it does seem reasonable to conclude that in some sense, the greater the faithfulness, the greater the reward when the king comes. Here's our problem, however. We don't always judge service in the way God judges it. So it's best, isn't it, just to leave that up to him. He will judge our faithfulness and he will reward us as is right and good and proper. That's not something we need to be concerned with. We need to be concerned with being faithful where he has put us. By the way, did you notice that the reward the faithful servants received is not a reward that they can enjoy as they sit down and fold their hands and do nothing? The reward for their faithfulness is more work The reward for work well done is more work to do for the kingdom. And this is something we'll be discussing further in our study of biblical economics on Wednesday evenings. The wise person realizes that work itself is a gift from God. It is what, in part, makes our lives meaningful and fulfilling. It is a good thing. When the investments of the third servant are audited, he explains the reason behind his hiding of the money. He says in verse 21, I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. But interestingly enough, that excuse is rejected by the master. The master says to him in return, verse 22 and 23, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. The man is condemned by his own words. If he really believed the master was the kind of person who would try to squeeze blood from a stone, that would be only more reason for him to invest what he had been given. 
we're left with the impression that this third servant didn't really understand the character of his master at all. The master had already given away ten cities to one servant and five to another. Does that sound like a harsh man? Yes, he has high expectations of his servants, but he is also kind and gracious and generous. So what do we see here as a result of this audit? First, we see that the faithful will receive appropriate rewards. This we've already seen in regard to the first two servants. And it is what every faithful servant of Christ will experience. Sometimes in this life and whatever way God sees fit, but most certainly in the next. And second, we see that the unfaithful will experience loss. The toughest question in this parable is whether or not the third servant is a believer. That's the question that I end up asking. What are we to make of this servant? He is obviously unfaithful. But is, is, is he an unfaithful believer or an unfaithful unbeliever? And some argue that since he did not really know and understand the character of his master... And since he is described as a worthless slave, that he's probably an unbeliever. On the other hand, there are those who point out that the judgment laid on him is only the loss of his resources. And that as we read further into the text, there is an entirely different group that are described as the master's enemies. And clearly distinguished from that unfaithful Slave. I personally think this third servant is like the one described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 who builds God's church with wood and hay and stubble rather than with gold and silver and precious stones. Here's what that text says about that man. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is not every believer in general. It is specifically dealing with those who are building the church of Christ. It's dealing with elders, with pastors. But the principle, I think we're also seeing here. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic on the point. We probably don't have enough information given to us to make a final determination. But I do lean toward the conclusion that this third servant is an unfaithful believer rather than an unfaithful unbeliever. Either way, he represents, his, his final state, I should say, represents a terrible waste. He is described as a servant He is distinguished from enemies in verse 27. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. That's a picture of judgment 
That's a picture of the wrath of God upon his enemies. The wrath and the judgment of God, as you well know, are not very popular subjects in our day. Many struggle with the question of the unevangelized. Will people who have never heard the gospel and therefore never have received Christ as Savior go to hell, or will God save them anyway because he is so gracious and merciful? And when we ask that question, we're asking the wrong question. When we ask that question, we're asking a question that puts man at the center, and man never belongs at the center. We need to think in a manner which keeps God at the center. And when we do that, we recognize that Scripture is unequivocal in its declaration of the exclusivity of Christ as the only way of salvation. Two passages are sufficient for our discussion this morning. In John chapter 14, verse 6, as he's talking to his disciples, having told them yet again that he's going to Jerusalem to die, he tells them not to be anxious, that he's going to prepare a place for them. And then he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, as Peter is preaching, he says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Thus says the scripture. But you would be amazed at the kind of contortions people will go through today to make those passages say something else. Liberals threw hell out a long time ago, and now many who call themselves evangelicals are looking for ways to do the same. But one cannot let Scripture speak for themselves and still deny the wrath of God. To deny the wrath of God is to deny the grace of God. One final observation. If I really believe that the wicked will suffer eternal punishment, is it not incumbent upon me to share with them the only thing that can save them, the gospel of Jesus Christ? God said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Neither should we. There should never be any hint of delight that the wicked are going to get what's coming to them. It is only by the grace of God that we are not getting what is coming to us. There should only be in the heart of God's people a sadness that a soul has been lost and a burning desire to share the good news that Jesus died so that a soul might live. So even if you can't, go along with Joe next weekend. Be praying that as the gospel is proclaimed, God might save. You know, sometimes I I, I come across stories of faithful, heroic Christians that make me sit back and say, I want to be like that. 
Usually that happens when there's some story of great courage or great sacrifice. That's what I'm drawn to. I like books and movies about heroes. Someone overcoming insurmountable odds. Someone fighting and even failing in a noble cause. There aren't many of those anymore. Now all we get are anti-heroes. But I think many of us are drawn to what we know we are not. But we'd like to be like that. I want to tell you a story about a different kind of heroism as we close this morning. It's a story of an elderly woman named Mary who had come to her church in North Dakota one Sunday, as she always did. On this day, Mary lost consciousness and fell out of her pew, striking her head on the edge of the pew. Immediately, someone called an ambulance, and an EMT who happened to be in the congregation began to attend her. And as they strapped her to a stretcher and got ready to head out the door, Mary's eyes opened, and she motioned for her daughter. And everyone thought she's getting ready to speak her last words. So her daughter comes and leans over her until her ear is at her mother's mouth. And Mary whispers, My offering is in my purse. (laughs) Father, make us faithful in the little things. Make us faithful, Father, day to day. Make us faithful in what you have called us to not what you have called others to so that Father by the time we get to the end of these lives of ours the days of which you have numbered we will hear those words well done good and faithful slave make us faithful Father, even if it is having our offering in our purse. For Christ's sake, Father, we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together.